out to Mark chapter 8. We will be in verses 22 to 26. If you're new to reading the Bible, uh, Mark is the second book in the New Testament. The, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. And you can also follow along with us as we, uh, on the screens as we read Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. This is the word of the Lord. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home, sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Friends, according to our passage this morning, Jesus heals a blind man at Bethsaida. Now, if you gave this text just a cursory reading, you might walk away thinking, well, Jesus heals a random blind man. But if you pay careful attention, you will see that there is nothing random about this healing. And you'll also see that the main character in this episode is not the blind man. As we unpack this text, I am convinced that we will see that Jesus' healing of this blind man served as an object lesson for the disciples. Earlier in Mark chapter 8, verse 18, Jesus pointedly asked his disciples, having eyes, do you not see, and having ears, do you not hear? So to instantly follow these words with an account of a man who literally has eyes but cannot see does not appear to be accidental on Mark's part. This episode of a blind man having his sight restored is a unique healing, as it's the only healing in the Gospels that occurs in stages. In his commentary on Mark, the late Dr. R.C. Sproul theorized that the movement from incomplete healing to the full restoration of the man's sight said something about the disciples. Complete hardness in heart was not the reason they still did not understand who Jesus was after his miracles in verses 14 to 21. In fact, their continued presence with him shows that they had started to see dimly, enabling them to begin to know Christ's true identity. Yet they had not yet come to know Jesus in his fullness. Jesus would have to do more to open their eyes and hearts to see him as the promised Savior of the world. So from our text this morning, the main point here simply is Jesus provides spiritual sight to the blind so that by faith we may see him as the Messiah. Jesus provides spiritual sight to the blind so that by faith we may see him as the Messiah. Three observations from our text this morning. In verses 22 to 23, we will see a dull perception. Verse 24, partial sight. And in verse 25 uh, and 26, clear vision. Now, 
The healing of the blind man in our passage this morning bears a very striking resemblance to Jesus' healing of the deaf and mute man in chapter 7, verses 31 to 37. So in both of these healings, Jesus performed uh, two different miracles in somewhat similar fashions. He stepped away from the crowds with the person in need of healing, and he physically touched them in unique ways to restore them completely. Now, an interesting observation here is that these two miracles fall against the backdrop of Isaiah 35, verse 5. The prophet Isaiah recorded, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And we see Jesus in Mark 7 and 8 fulfilling this vision way back in Isaiah 35. It's also interesting that we should consider Jesus' interactions with the disciples of John the Baptist. In Luke chapter 7, verses 20 to 22, John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus, interestingly, to make sure that John didn't mistakenly identify Jesus as the Messiah. Things weren't looking the way that one would expect that a coming Messiah would uh, make the world to be. John had a flutter of doubt. Maybe he identified the wrong guy. In, verse, in uh, Luke 7, verses 20 to 22, Luke records, And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he had healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he, being Jesus, answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. So the evidence presented to John and John's disciples was the same sufficient evidence for the disciples of Jesus and the Pharisees to believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And that's the same evidence that we need to see that he is indeed the Messiah of the scriptures. Sandwiched in the middle of the healing of the deaf and mute man in, seven, uh, in chapter 7, verses 31 to 37, and the healing of the blind man in our passage today in chapter 8, verses 22 to 26, Jesus fed a great crowd of 4,000 with seven loaves and just a few small fish. Uh, that's in chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. But then in verses 11 through 13, The Pharisees sought to test Jesus, so they demanded yet another sign. But Jesus flatly denied their demand and refused to satisfy their blasphemous appetites. Jesus had already provided the Pharisees more than enough evidence for them to draw the right conclusion, that the Jesus of Nazareth that they opposed was indeed the promised Messiah of the scriptures that they claimed to hold dear. But the Pharisees remained hardened in their unbelief. Then while traveling in verses 14 to 21, the disciples realized that they forgot to pack bread for their journey. They just had one loaf and they knew from personal experience that the math did not work in their favor. How would one loaf of bread feed Jesus and the 12 disciples? Well, surely Jesus couldn't feed 4,000 people with just a few loaves of bread. 
But Jesus' concern was not their next meal. Rather, he turned his attention to instruct and warn the disciples. So while the disciples are trying to figure out lunch, Jesus rebukes them and says, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. It's a really interesting rebuke for the disciples to receive when they're trying to figure out lunch plans. And they're obviously thinking, well, how are we going to get Jesus to eat too? But Jesus' concern was to warn them. The first was a warning against religious tyranny and hypocrisy, that of the Pharisees. And the second was against political deceitfulness, the leaven of Herod. But the disciples' spiritual fogginess does not take very long to show itself. In verse 16 of chapter 8, and they began to dis- discussing with one another the fact they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves of the five, for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? After all the time the disciples have spent with the Lord, sitting directly under his teaching and witnessing his mighty works, their vision of Jesus as the Messiah was still blurry. Commentator James Edwards said that the juxtaposition of the two stories of these healings is a clue that the lingering blindness of the disciples may also be relieved, as is the blindness of the man at Bethsaida, by the continued touch of Jesus. So just like this blind man, the disciples will need a second touch, meaning the continued presence and instruction of Jesus so that in time they may finally see him clearly. Just like this blind man, we, friends, in the 21st century, in a modern Western society, we need God to sharpen our spiritual vision. The lesson that we need to learn is the same that the disciples needed to learn. If our spiritual fog is to lift, if our sight is to sharpen, if we are to see God rightly, if we are to see the world and ourselves rightly, our spiritual blindness must be overcome and our vision must be sharpened. Our vision must be refined to see Jesus. And the only solution to our spiritual blindness is a supernatural, God-given sight of glory. A sight of glory that can only be received by faith. So with that, let us now consider our first observation in the healing of this blind man. A dull perception. So in verses 22 to 23, and they came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? So Jesus and his disciples traveled to a fishing village, Bethsaida. Being in Maryland, I will sometimes mispronounce this when I read the text as Bethesda, not the same place. But Bethsaida was the home of at least three of Jesus' disciples, Philip, Andrew, and Peter. And another important detail about uh, Bethsaida is found in Luke chapter 10, verses 13 to 14. And it might surprise some of us, 
But Jesus did not have a high opinion of this village. Because in, in Luke chapter 10, verses 13 and 14, Jesus said, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. So not exactly uh, uh, light, fluffy speech there. But Dr. Sproul again, he commented on this passage saying that the people of Bethsaida saw mighty miracles, but they did not repent and believe. It seems the leaven of the Pharisees was thoroughly needed in their hearts. So the, the leaven of the Pharisees that Jesus warns his disciples thoroughly needed in the hearts of the people of Bethsaida. Friends, the same leaven needed in the hearts of the people of Bethsaida can be needed into our own hearts, which is interestingly something that the writer of uh, of the book of Hebrews understood. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, the, the writer of Hebrews instructs us, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. One final observation about Jesus being in Bethsaida. This is the final miracle Jesus performed in the Gentile territory recorded in Mark's Gospel. This is the final miracle, and it's an interesting detail because after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ in the next section of verses, the direction of Jesus' ministry shifts from this public ministry to a more specialized private ministry to his disciples. And we'll see in this private ministry to his disciples in the last half of Mark's gospel that Jesus will repeatedly emphasize his coming death on the cross. So, Who do we meet in Bethsaida? A group of people brought a blind man to Jesus and they begged him to touch the man, specifically with a healing touch. So the text does not explicitly make clear if this group of people are this man's friends and family or if they're just itching to see Jesus put on a fantastic show. Here's Mr. Miracle and he's going to work another miracle for the blind guy. So we don't know what their intentions are. They likely brought the man with good intentions, right? That Jesus would heal him. But we don't know if they repented and believed Jesus. Based on the scant details provided about who this man specifically is, we can safely assume he's not someone of high importance in Bethsaida. We're not made aware of his faith or his understanding of who Jesus is. It's only his condition of blindness that we're given as an explicit detail of who this man is. So in verse 23... Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid, on his, laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? So Mark records something really interesting here in verse 23. Notice how the healing here is a private healing. Generally, when Jesus healed someone, his healing was performed in the open for the crowds to see, not isolated from witnesses. You can look at uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 32 to 34. You can see in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. And then again in Mark chapter 6, verses 53 to 56. Jesus' miracles were largely public. But with this man, Jesus chose to be with him 
privately. But why? Because this healing was not for the crowds. This healing was for Jesus' disciples. The disciples needed Jesus to spend more time with them, to illuminate their minds and their dull perception of who Jesus is. So this healing would be an object lesson for them, but they just didn't know it yet. Not only did Jesus take the blind man by the hand and lead him to a private place, he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, and he asked him, do you see anything? Now, as modern readers of the text, spitting on a man's eyes may seem like a really strange thing to do. You may even be tempted to kind of cringe at the awkwardness of Jesus spitting in a man's face. But, as our faith grows and matures, even when the scriptures present something to us that appears to be awkward or uncomfortable, our default position increasingly becomes to trust Jesus. As our understanding of God and his character grows, we believe in greater degrees than we did before that God is good, that God is perfect, that God is wise. So one sign that your faith may be growing is that you progressively recognize that God is worthy of our trust. Regardless of how uncomfortable or awkward something is in the scriptures or even the awkwardness or discomfort that may be in the circumstances of your life. Just like he has with his disciples and the Pharisees, Jesus has given us more than enough evidence to believe he is trustworthy. Now, in our modern culture, spitting on people is generally a very disrespectful thing to do. It's usually indicating that we could not think any lower of the person that has just been spat on. Now, while droplets of spit are public enemy number one in our pandemic era, and justifiably so, the application of spit and the laying on of hands had significant implications in, Jew- in Jewish practice in Jesus' day. One commentator said that the spittle of certain persons was considered by the Jews to have healing power, especially when it was accompanied by conversation, applied to the area of sickness or injury, and accompanied by a formula or prayer. So Jesus' spit was not magic. And we already know, based on Jesus' healings before, that he didn't even have to heal the man this way. He literally could have restored the man's sight simply by speaking it as he healed the Syrophoenician woman's daughter who had an unclean spirit. Jesus was not even in the same presence as that little girl, and he healed her by his words. So we know Jesus doesn't have to do it this way, but why does he do it? By spitting on the blind man's eyes, putting his hands on him, and asking him a question, Jesus entered the man's thought world, and he established a deeply personal connection with him. That is the gentleness and the graciousness of our Lord. By doing so, Jesus probably brought confidence to this blind man. He soothed his anxieties, and he most likely brought him hope. Pastor and author uh, Tim Keller reflected on uh, Charles Spurgeon's thoughts on this scene. So this is a quote within a quote that I am now quoting to you. Keller said, Then Spurgeon made a tremendous application. At times, the truth that Jesus reveals to us will be very unpleasant. Things he reveals to us about our own sinfulness and insufficiency. But just as Jesus spit in the man's eyes, and, and began to enable him to see a little bit more, so the truth, even if it is unpleasant, starts to open 
our eyes. Truth, even if it is unpleasant, starts to open our eyes. Friends, I I wonder, how has Jesus opened your eyes? How has Jesus revealed unpleasant truths to you of your own sinfulness and insufficiency? And when something unpleasant has been revealed to you of your own sinfulness and insufficiency, how have you responded? Do you clam up as a result and then isolate yourself away from God and away from God's people? It may just be that God is revealing something unpleasant to you to grow you and to mature you. You could think about that over lunch today. Maybe talk to your spouse or a fellow church member and consider together how God is opening your eyes to see him and to see yourself more clearly. The goal is not to simply gaze at our navels. Friends, the goal is to look up, to lift our eyes up and to see Jesus more clearly. Now, the religious leaders of the day would have considered that this blind man was untouchable. But Jesus' ministry is a tactile ministry, and there's a deep significance to that. Mark records various different references to Jesus touching this man. He took the man by the hand. He laid his hands on him. One commentator noted, that the two primary purposes of laying on of hands in the Old Covenant were to transfer either animals or persons from the profane to the sacred by consecrating them to God. When Jesus lays hands on people, the profane is no longer elevated to the sacred, as in the Old Testament, but rather by bestowing God's holy and healing presence on ordinary, common, and even sinful people, Jesus brings the sacred to the profane. Friends, that, that's our story. Jesus brings the sacred to the profane. Jesus brings sight to the blind. So let's consider our second observation. Verse 24, partial sight. And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So the man looked up and described to Jesus what he knew to be people, who looked like trees that were walking. There's a few interesting observations here from the text as well. First, in the original Greek, there are eight different words being used for nine instances of seeing in verses 23 to 25. I was reflecting with some friends earlier this morning, sometimes with the healings and the various different miracles that we see in the scriptures, if you are like me, and as you're reading through the text, you can sometimes kind of just gloss over what's familiar yeah, we know Jesus heals a blind man and we know Jesus heals uh, women in need and we know that Jesus can heal those with unclean spirits. And we kind of just move on trying to get to the the good stuff, you know, like a, a new nugget that maybe we didn't know last week or the week before. But if we slow down and carefully pay attention to what God is showing us, it is clear that he has a lot in store that we have yet to uncover. So eight different words for nine instances of seeing. In our uh, modern English translations where we read in verse 24, he looked up, a more precise translation would be he regained his sight. So it's not just an action that he does, it's an action that Jesus does and a gift that he has received. He regained his sight. So the Greek is showing us the man didn't just look up and you know, have blurry vision and we're just going to move on to the next sentence. 
he did not experience what we experience when we go to an eye doctor and put on that big fancy machine with our, uh, on our face and they swap through the various lenses until the blurriness is crystal clear. This man regains his vision. It's not simply just corrected. It's not like he just put on some glasses and now he can see, but it's a little blurry, but he can live with it. What's emphasized here is the fact that the man has now in his possession something he did not just moments before. The man looked up with a regained vision that was yet to be clarified and fully restored. And another interesting thing here from his reply to Jesus' question is that this man was likely not even born blind. Had the man been blind from birth, he most likely never would have even been able to distinguish human beings and trees. To say he saw people who looked like trees walking indicates this man once probably had sight, but had lost it somehow. Now, Jesus' healing up to this point was incomplete, but verse 24 is a clue that the disciples themselves will be enabled by Jesus to begin the process of moving from blindness to sight. This man's uh, restoration was a process. He goes from complete blindness to partial sight, and spoiler alert, he will ultimately have fully restored and clear vision. Friends, being a Christian means that the veil has been lifted from our eyes, and we see and submit to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And as a Christian, God is sharpening our vision in a lifelong process. The Bible calls this process sanctification. In our church, you'll probably hear folks in conversation say something like, we're all in process. I think John Piper's definition of the term sanctification is spot on. In our home, in the Gomes home, um, we refer to John Piper as just simply Grandpa John. But Piper defines it, the term sanctification, as progressively becoming like Jesus, gradually becoming like Jesus or becoming holy, becoming conformed to the image of Christ little by little over time from conversion till Jesus comes back or you die. You are in the process of sanctification, becoming sanctified, becoming holy. As a Christian, Friends, if you have repented of your sins and you have placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, you are in this process of becoming holier, of becoming more and more conformed into the image of Jesus. You are going from gradual degrees of no longer looking like the man or the woman that you were when you were dead in your sins. You are growing more and more into the image of the glorious Jesus Christ. But if you have found the slowness and the gradual nature of your sanctification to be frustrating, dealing with the same sins that you thought 10 years later you would no longer have to deal with, if you find that the slowness of the nature of your uh, sanctification, of your process of becoming more like Jesus, is frustrating, take heart. Be encouraged. That's not just a trite, pithy statement that I want to say to you because I want you to feel good about yourselves. Friends, You can be confident of this. Paul in Philippians 1 verse 6 said, and I am sure of this. I am sure of this. I am fully confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
He is fully confident that the work that God began in the saints in the church of Philippi would indeed be completed. Friends, Jesus is known for many things, but he is not known for being haphazard. He will not be haphazard with you. If you are in Christ, you can be sure that he will complete the good work that he began in you. For Christmas um, uh, this past year, um, I promised my wife that I would paint this beloved hutch that she has. Uh, I bought the hutch for her several Valentine's days ago. Uh, She wanted it to have this stark uh, old white color painted on it. Um, That would mean you've got to take everything apart. You've got to paint everything. Then you've got to paint everything again. Then you have to wait until everything dries. Then you have to slowly apply wax then you have to wait till that dries. Then you have to slowly apply the wax again. Then you have to wait till that dries. And then you have to make sure that there are no spots that you missed. And you got to keep working on it. Then you get wax on the glass. Then you got to put all the hardware back on. Then you got to put the doors back on. It is February and I'm still not done with my project. This was a gift for Christmas. It's February and I'm not done. You would think that I'm being haphazard, that I'm just trying to throw this together and I just want to be done with it. But I want to be really careful with the gift that I want to give to her. And maybe by next Christmas, it will be done. But friends, Jesus has promised the work that he began is not like painting and waxing the hutch. He will complete the work that he began. You can be assured of that. The good work that Jesus began in you fellow Christian, did not require that you had to prove yourself worthy and then come to Jesus to see if you can be worked on by him. Your spiritual sight was given to you by faith in Jesus. If the trials and temptations of this week or this month or this year or this last year or the last 10 years or the last 30 years has made it more difficult for you to see Jesus clearly, Ask God to help you to see and keep asking. Don't stop asking. Consider leaning into some Christian friends who can help remind you of what is true and help you to place your thoughts on Christ. Often our spiritual fogginess is like that of the disciples. We see Jesus, we understand who he is, we know that Jesus is God, he's the second person of the Trinity, Jesus died for us. We know like the basic God-man truths of Jesus. But how prone are we to forget what he has done? How prone are we to forget what Jesus Christ has accomplished? Well, that begs the question, what has Jesus done? What has Jesus accomplished? Friends, Jesus has delivered to us good news. We are desperately hungry for good news. Jesus has given to us the gospel. This is not a sermon that if uh, uh, big evangelical cultures, conferences were to hear me preach, uh, that they would you know, really be quick to jump on the, on the wagon and invite me to come out to you know, their big mega conferences and, and, and preach. Friends, Jesus has given to us the gospel. We need to reflect on and meditate and rehearse the gospel message. It's a simple truth, but it is a deep truth. We must reflect on meditate and rehearse the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is good news. 
both for the Christian and friend, if you are here today and you are not a Christian, this is good news for you too. I don't want to throw my Bible at you or hunt you down or anything like that, but friend, this is good news for you. The one and only God who is holy made us in his image to know him. That is a beautiful reality. But the unpleasant reality is that we have sinned, we have rebelled, we have transgressed against this holy God by sin. We have sinned against him. We have cut ourselves off from him. We have seen the beauty of God and we've said, no, we don't want you. What this means, friends, sin, is that you and I are in need of true and perfect righteousness to be acceptable before God. And in and of ourselves, we don't have the righteousness that is required to be in a right standing relationship with God. What we have is what God rejects, sin. But God's solution to our problem of sin is not just to brush it under the rug. God's solution is to nail it to the cross in Jesus. In his great love, God became a man in Jesus who lived a perfect life, a perfect life that you and I could not live. He died a death on the cross that you and I deserve to die for transgressing against this holy God. He has taken on himself, after having fulfilled God's perfect law, the punishment for the sins of all those who would ever turn from their sin and trust in him. That's good news. The condemnation and the death that we deserve for our sin was borne by Jesus, who died in our place as a substitute. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he, God, condemned sin in the flesh. This is what we call the great exchange. And again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He rose again from the dead, showing that God accepted Christ's sacrifice and that God's wrath against us had been exhausted. He now calls us to repent of our sins and to trust in Christ alone for our forgiveness. If we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we are born again into a new life, an eternal life with God. Friends, in Jesus Christ, you have been given new spiritual sight. And that spiritual sight that he has given to you helps you to see that you are no longer what you once were. In Jesus, this new sight helps you to see that he has become unrighteousness in your place and for you as your substitute. You are now the righteousness of God in his place. That is good news. That is news that we need to rehearse if we want to help, if, if we want to see clearly, see ourselves clearly in light of the truths of Scripture, if we want to see God clearly in light of his revelation in, scriptures, in Scripture, we need to rehearse the gospel in our minds and our hearts. The more we do that, friends, the clearer we'll see. It might not be overnight, and it might not be really fast, it might not be as quick as you want to see, but gradually, progressively, over time, you will see more clearly. 
So with that, let's consider our third observation, verses 25 to 26. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. I long for the day when I will have the kind of restored, glorified vision that this man had. I have had terrible vision since the third grade, and my physical sight has only deteriorated year after year. Friends, without my glasses, everything is blurry, and even the smallest task is annoyingly more difficult. A few years ago, when our oldest was a lot younger, I came home from work. I was so excited to see my girl and my wife. But my youngest daughter then, our oldest daughter now, she was so excited to see me, she grabbed my glasses, ripped it off my face, and threw it on the ground. And all you saw on the floor were black plastic shattered all over. I was so excited to see her when I got home, and here I am now, I cannot see her face clearly. Friends, I long for the day when I will no longer have to slide my glasses up the bridge of my nose because it's hot and sweaty and the, the, it just keeps sliding down. I long for the day when my glasses won't fall off my face or when the headphones press a little too hard on the, on the bridges here and presses too hard against the head. I don't know what the process will look like for when Jesus restores my terrible vision to a new glorified vision with the new glorified bodies that we'll receive. But for this blind man, restoring his vision involved two stages. And I'm praying that for all of us glasses wearers, that our process will be a lot faster than two stages. It's in this second stage, though, of Jesus' healing that the man's vision is fully restored. The Greek text literally emphasizes a climax in seeing. So we could read verse 25 more accurately as he looked up, opened his eyes wide, and had a clear view of everything. This man now could see near, he could see far, he could see wide, but perhaps the most extraordinary thing now in his new sight, this man could see Jesus. He saw Jesus with pristine clarity. He would be able to see the individual strands of hair on Jesus' head. He would see the hands of Jesus that so graciously and kindly led him. Friends, he would see Jesus' eyes penetrating his own. He saw everything clearly. He would have seen the little wrinkles from Jesus' smile, year after year. He saw everything clearly. The progressive nature of the man's healing represented the situation of the disciples. The disciples progressed from their condition of not understanding in chapter 8, verses 17 to 21. Spoiler alert, they will then progress to partial understanding in chapter 8, verses 29 to 33. And finally, they will have complete understanding at the end of Mark's gospel. The disciples saw Jesus. Their vision was blurred and imperfect, but it would not remain imperfect forever. At the cross and the resurrection, the disciples would see everything clearly. 
I can't recall a time, and, 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 and maybe you can, but I've never met a fellow Christian who's, uh, who was once physically blind and then they were miraculously healed. But if you're a Christian, Jesus has overcome your blindness. Jesus has overcome my blindness. Tim Keller again offers some helpful counsel for us to see Jesus more clearly. That's the great need of our every day, of our, of our every week. This is the need that we have, to see Jesus more clearly. Keller said, Jesus' touch comes in the community of believers. You, friend, cannot sharpen your spiritual sight on your own. You have to be willing to go to other believers who can see you and say to them, help me, show me. It's through your fellowship with other believers who say to you, this is what I have learned. This is what the Lord did for me. I went through this illness, this struggle with my children. In this, the Lord taught me this or that. This is a passage in the Bible or or a Bible story that has helped me. I used to think this, but over years, I've learned something else. It's through those kinds of conversations in the church that our spiritual sight collectively is sharpened. But don't think that it's only with people whose vision is sharper than yours. Often it is time spent with believers whose vision is blurrier than yours. You are telling them truths that you have learned and those very truths are impressed on your mind in fresh ways. Christianity is not simply just a philosophy of life, it's a relationship with Christ. If it were simply a philosophy, then you could most likely arrive at perfect sight through your own private study and analysis. But because Christianity is a relationship with Jesus Christ, our sight is sharpened by relationships with other people who know him. We get to know him better by knowing people who know him. And as we see what he is doing in their lives, things become clearer. Friends, I wonder if after hearing Keller's words, if someone comes to mind uh, whose vision of Jesus might be a little bit blurrier than your own vision. Maybe someone who uh, is not as spiritually mature as you are or maybe even as disciplined as you. Uh, Maybe someone who is a fellow Christian but you would rather avoid them personally because their personality and quirkiness might uh, annoy you. Friends, it may just be that God has placed that particular person that you might want to avoid to help you. Not for you to run away from, but for you to grow in love, in patience, in Christ-likeness. If we want to see Jesus more clearly, we need one another. We need one another. And often, the means that God will most likely use to sharpen your spiritual sight and my spiritual sight given to us by faith in Jesus is the fellow members of your local church. The local church, friends, is foundational to God's plan for his people and for God's people to see him more clearly. So if you're taking notes, Romans 15, verses 19 to 20, tells us that the local church is God's evangelism strategy to accomplish his global mission so that those who are presently blind spiritually and unable to see God may by faith in Christ see God. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 to 23, reminds us that the church is Jesus' body on earth. 
I read one author recently who said that the church is built for Jesus, by Jesus, and on Jesus. It is simply unthinkable then to separate Jesus from the local church. If the gospel is the diamond in the great salvific plan of God, then the church is the clasp that supports it, holds it up, and shows it in its greatest light for the world to see. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13, confirms for us that the local church is how God intends to grow and mature his people as they receive biblical instruction, reproof, and encouragement. The local church is the trellis upon which we grow. One, one final observation, uh, Hebrews 13, verse 17. Ma- Hebrews 13, verse 17 makes it clear that God deser- desires for his people to submit themselves under the care and oversight of biblically qualified elders. Why is that important? Because friends, Lone Ranger Christianity does not help you follow Jesus. Lone Ranger Christianity only confuses you and blurs your vision of him. If you simply slip in and out on any given Sunday, you isolate yourself from other believers uh, in the church, if the idea of submitting to one another in church membership and submitting to one another uh, uh, to the authority of the elders in a local church triggers maybe a defensive posture in you, friends, if you skip the worship gathering altogether, uh, obedience to Jesus in general becomes more difficult. But it becomes more difficult also specifically to this command and to the one another commands in scripture. So how do we as members of a local church here in Hagerstown learn to see Jesus more clearly on a consistent basis? Well, friends, consider that together we trust that we have been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result, we give ourselves to him. Having been baptized upon the profession of our faith in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. We see Jesus more clearly together as we submit ourselves together to the authority of Christ through his word. We see Jesus more clearly together as we work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We see Jesus more clearly together as we walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church, exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonishing and entreating one another as the occasion may require. We see Jesus more clearly when we do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. As we endeavor to bring up any that are under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and seek the salvation of our family and friends through God's word and Christ-like example. We desire for others to see God clearly. We see Jesus more clearly together as we seek, by God's grace, to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness. Ungodliness will not help you see clearly. We deny worldly lusts. Worldly lusts will not satisfy us. It will only blur our vision. We remember that since we've been buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, 
and given new spiritual sight, there is now a special obligation to lead a new and holy life that we lead together. Friends, our spiritual sight sharpens as we read the scriptures, as we think on Jesus, as we remember and celebrate the gospel, as we share the gospel with others, as we love one another, and as we worship together. If we want to see clearly, we do this together. Our faith grows as we see the power, the goodness, and the love of God displayed in Christ. Just like the blind man restored that, that Jesus restored and then ultimately the disciples, we too will one day see everything clearly because of Jesus. Let us pray now, as the Apostle Paul did, that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened and that we may know the hope to which he has called us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have given to us grace, that you have drawn us near to yourself. And Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ, we can see you more clearly, that we can see ourselves more rightly. We thank you, Lord, for the truth that you have revealed to us according to the scriptures. And we pray now that you would help us to refine our vision, to refine our understanding of the ways of God and to help one another to see and to savor the glory of Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to move from days of blurred vision to clearer sight. And until the day that we die or you come back, Lord, we long to see your son. Father, we pray now that you would bless us, that you would encourage us, that you would help us to lift our eyes up to the hills to see from where our help comes. And we pray, Lord, that in all things, you would receive the honor and the glory that you are due. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.